are, of course, the Sermon on the Mount preached by our Lord and Savior before his crucifixion. And after his crucifixion, the other great sermon was preached by Peter at Pentecost. Those two great sermons are actually two parts of a whole, I believe. And we'll see how the one complements the other as we would read together. So Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad, Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, he, seeing this before, spoke, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all, we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ." Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, 
and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I've read until the 42nd verse. Anyone coming to the Sermon on the Mount for the first time, I think, would be impressed with the grand nature of it, the sweeping completeness of it, the moral perfection of it. Even philosophers and and learned men will marvel at its content. It's no secret that I like watching some of the videos of Jordan Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, and he also has made much of this Sermon on the Mount and the importance of some of the things that Christ was teaching there, though he himself does not openly profess Christ. But if you are like me, to read its words and to marvel at them, to long after them with the inner man, the reality of what Christ was asking was crushing. Impossible. If the old law under Moses was hard to fulfill, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount were impossible. Just one part of it, for instance. I think in in the other recording, it, it says, and when they persecute you, Leap for joy. How, how do you even begin to make sense of that? In my mind, I have the, the picture in my head of, of the pro soccer players after they score a goal and the, the antics and the celebration and the jumping in the air and everything else that goes with it. I mean, the supremely happy state. And of course, the more important the goal, the bigger the celebration. To have that sort of response to being persecuted? How? How is that possible? I mean, if the instruction had been, hold fast, you know there's a better day coming, just endure to the end, grit your teeth and bear it, okay, I could make a little bit more sense of that, but rejoice, rejoice in that. Or to realize that it's not enough to keep oneself from fornication or adultery, but that even lust in the heart was equal in God's sight to the actual act itself? Now, we understand that the nobility of what we're called to. One can certainly appreciate what Christ was speaking about how these things come from the heart and is the heart that needs to be right with God. We can understand that that's really what God desires, not just a a checkbox religion 
that simply says, I, I've done that. But the Sermon on the Mount exposes the heart and the question left with the listeners as they went home. I, you know, I, I have a vivid imagination, I guess, and for me, what, what, what must have that had been like to go away from that sermon and walk home? What sort of conversations do you think it spawned? My brother and I used to go sometimes to go hear the Toronto Symphony or some other music groups um, perform. And afterwards, we used to go out for coffee and we laughingly called it the post-mortem. You know, we'd sit down and discuss our impressions of it and what we thought of it and what we particularly liked, what was really memorable, what didn't seem to work. I mean, sometimes we do the same thing with sermons, I think, as well. Certain points, that was a good point, but I don't know about that, or I think he was off there, maybe. What do you think people made of that great sermon of Christ? It says, he taught with authority and not as the scribes. People recognized that they were, in, they were in the presence of greatness there. And the things that Christ laid out were so much more powerful, rang so much more true than the, the nitpicking religion of the Pharisees and the scribes. But how to fulfill it? What about that? Impossible. Impossible. But of course, you know, when we sometimes think that the You know, Christ, Christ comes and the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, is kind of swept out of the way and, and this great teaching of Christ supplants it. I think of it more of those, those Russian dolls, you know, where the, the lesser is covered of the greater. It's not that the first became untrue, but the greater revelation encapsulated that and added to it. That's why Christ often said, ye have heard it said of them in old time. The law could teach the difference between clean and unclean, but after that, it could do nothing. There was no power in the law to fulfill the law because what the law pointed out was that the seat of whether something is clean or unclean was actually the heart. That dividing line that went through all of nature actually cut right through our hearts, and the realization would come to those who were the serious students of the law, not students, but those who longed after the heart of God and loved his word like David did, would realize that their own heart held impurity and needed to be cleansed. Wash me throughly from my iniquity, David said. He realized that the solution had to somehow come from God, that Christ's Sermon on the Mount was the logical uh, extrapolation of the law, that what the law taught what, what the Pharisees thought they could fulfill by this sort of checkbox religion was not the end of the law itself, that there was, it was pointing to something else which was the heart of man. But of course, the ability to fulfill was lacking. And Christ taught these things, and as, as he 
who went through his earthly ministry, he revealed more and more. And eventually, he even told his disciples what it is that he had in mind, what was coming, that he was going to die, but that he was going to rise again, and that there was going to be coming a day where, where they and him and his father would all become one, that there was an a, 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 a indwelling coming. And of course, the disciples didn't really understand that either. They missed it. Which makes me feel a little bit better about myself when I consider my own shortcomings and failings. But they missed it as well. And it wasn't until, I think the first time, that it really starts to make sense was on that road to Emmaus when the two disciples were walking together and a third man joins them and says, what are you talking about and why are you so sad? And they say, well, let me explain to you what's been going on. There was this great teacher. We thought he was, we thought he was the one. We thought he was going to be the one that was going to finally liberate Israel to be the, the, the Messiah. But they killed him. You're too late. You missed the big show, the main event. You've just come at the, the tail end of things. And Christ turns to them and says, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and entered into his glory? And he began at Moses and all the prophets. And if I had the choice to listen to one sermon of Christ, I think that might have been it. I would love to hear him explain how these things all fit and how he was the fulfillment of that. But he lays it all out for them. And then afterwards, they said, did our hearts burn within us as he spoke with us by the way? And that was the beginning, the new dawn. There was a new realization now that was coming to his disciples, an understanding of something special coming. And Christ gives this uh, instruction. It says, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Ghost. And he says, but tarry ye at Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. There's an empowering coming. And this sermon happens on that very day that the Holy Spirit came down in such a, a, a mighty way, a rushing, mighty wind. And Peter goes out and preaches this great sermon, the other great sermon of the New Testament, if I had to pick. And he explains. He finally explains what Christ always had in mind but was hidden, even in the Sermon on the Mount, was not yet fully explained. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh. The Sermon on the Mount, though it can be admired by fallen man, cannot be lived by fallen man. It is an impossibility. It can't be done. The best fallen man can do is detach himself from this world as the Buddhists do and choose by some trick of the mind to disconnect themselves from the suffering of this world and try not to do any harm. But loving our enemies? No. 
That's now a positive. That's not a severing of a connection, but a making of a new one. And we see it perfected in Christ. But we are yet his enemies. While they were yet throwing these things in his teeth, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now to those very murderers, Peter stands up and speaks. In verse 19, he says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. They were familiar with these, these mysterious smoky passages from Joel, talking about some point in the future that was both glorious and terrible. But they had just witnessed it. The sun had indeed been darkened. The moon, as it came up that night, was indeed blood red. And there was a gentleman who tried to do some calculations to find out when exactly it was that our Lord was crucified. And he took this passage literally, saying, when was there a blood moon during a Passover? And he was able to calculate the date as to where it was most likely that Christ was crucified and resurrected. There were strange things that happened in Jerusalem, and To put yourself in the shoes of those that were there, it must have been, it must have seemed like the end of the world. The city shook. Spirits of dead saints were seen walking in Jerusalem. The very curtain in the temple that I'm told was some three or four feet thick, something like that of matted felt and gold and jewelry, ripped in two, parted, and that place that was never supposed to be seen by anyone except the high priest was suddenly open. Maybe to the daylight when the sun rose for the first time since its construction. They saw all those things, and Peter here now makes sense of it all. He doesn't mince his words. Twenty-three. Him, Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Not the Romans. They only did your dirty work. It was you that killed him. Not a popular message. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now he begins to lay out who this plain carpenter from Galilee really was. Taking the words of David and other prophets, he begins to explain who exactly this man was and what it meant that he had to die. The Jews were very familiar with the idea of debits and credits in a religious system and the idea of a debt there was something that had to be expunged, and it, it had to be dealt with. God had to provide a way to make things clean again. And this time, it would be that one who really was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But that was not enough. A sacrifice alone was not sufficient. That could only take care of the debt. 
It did nothing for the fulfilling of that Sermon on the Mount that we heard from this morning. A simply wiping clear of the slate doesn't help the one who is still bound by sin. He goes out and commits new sins. There had to be more. And so Peter here chooses to focus instead on the, on the pouring out of the promise of his father, as he calls it. And this really is the only, the only proper answer to the Sermon on the Mount and its demands. In order to fulfill what the Sermon on the Mount demanded, first of all, the only one who kept it was Christ, but in order for us to fulfill it, we have to become like him. There's no other way. Man in his natural state cannot keep it. I'd say not even part of it. You know, people might have been able to say, as the rich young ruler did, all these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? No man could say that about the Sermon on the Mount. The only one was Christ. So we must become like him. And what is inside of us must be displaced. That the, the, the fallen nature of man must be superseded with a new nature that comes from God alone. And that is the answer. That is the solution to the Sermon on the Mount. There needs to be a new creation. It is indeed, as Christ said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. You have to start over. A new nature, a new creature, as we say. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. The Old Testament was all about the cleansing required, the new heart that had to come, the, the washing away of in, in ritual forms with either water or blood, And in the same way, there had to be a washing also for us. Christ's blood indeed washed away our sins, but the filling that was to follow, the filling of the Holy Spirit that began at Pentecost, flowed out from that point, and you can continue reading in Acts as it came to new places. You think about how striking that must have been to those that were there in those days. This was religion unlike anything that they had seen. Every other religious system based, is based on, on a system of works with debits and credits. I challenge you to find me one that does not have that at its core. Christianity is the only religion that promises a new nature, a new beginning. And so it was. It says, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts. And that King James language here is maybe, at least to our modern minds, doesn't quite capture it. It means they were pierced. P 
pierced right to the center of their being. And that's how far the word of God has to go. Right to the bottom. This is when, you know, the, the, the verse, I think it's in Hebrews. Um, the word of God is quick and powerful. Four, four, Hebrews 4, I think, verse 12. Um, that it divides between the joints and the marrow and soul and spirit. That doesn't mean that it splits into two parts. Because, of course, the joints and the marrow don't actually touch. But if you've ever cleaned a piece of meat, you know, cutting away to get to the joint or the center of the bone where the marrow is, right down to the middle, till you can't go anymore. That's how God's word pierces. And the fine point that's on the, the, the Sermon on, on the Mount, that, that message that pierces right to the center, you say, yes, this is right, this is true, but I can't keep it. The answer is this message that we've read. When the word of God finally reaches the middle of your being, when you let it reach the middle of your being, and you are totally open now. God's word has totally penetrated you to the point where you realize that in your flesh dwells no good thing, that, that the cleansing, like David realized so many hundreds of years before this, that the cleansing must come from God. As Peter realized when he said, depart from me, I am an unclean man, O Lord. When you can get to that point, then you're ready. Then you're ready to appropriate that sacrifice for yourself, then Christ says, this one I can show grace to. This is the one who's ready now to live. Here is one who is indeed poor in spirit and can be pure in heart. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. It need not take long. I spent probably from the age of about 14, 15, till about 21, repenting, as I thought. Here we see, from the message to the baptism. Now, that of course doesn't discount the fact that there have been three years of preaching already before this, and who knows how many of them had heard Christ himself speak to them. But when the word of God reaches to the center of your being, when there is nothing left between you and God, when it has indeed done its work, piercing right to the very center of who you are, and lays you open before God, when you realize there is no way that you can keep the Sermon on the Mount, no matter how beautiful it is, now you're ready. Now you're ready to have your sins washed away, and now you are ready for the infilling of the Spirit of God that will allow you to live that life. Why do I say that? Because there have been those who did it. There were those that went rejoicing to the fire. There were those that were able to turn their back on wife and family for years because of the love of their Lord, knowing that the Lord would keep them. There have been those that have loved their enemies, like Dirk Willem, who turned around and rescued from the frigid waters of the river the one who is coming after him to kill him. It can be done. The Sermon on the Mount can be lived, but not in the power of the flesh. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. Amen. Would a brother please select a hymn?
The hymnal is open to hymn number 57. Let's sing 57, verses uh, 1, 2, and 8. The first two and the last verses. Please lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you so much, Lord, for the refreshment of thy word of what we heard today in the morning and the afternoon, how it all fits together, Lord. Help us, dear Heavenly Father. Strengthen us with your grace and your truth and your love, Lord, that we may go into this world and express the, the, the beautiful salt of this world, of this earth, Lord, of what you offer 
your salt, your truth, your love of what you have done on the cross for us so that we can have life eternal and, Lord, that we can express um, your love and truth from your divine grace. Lord, we cannot overcome this world. We cannot do anything without you. So, Lord, we call upon you that we would be saved from this world, that, Lord, that you would save us with your grace and with your truth, and that we can teach and help and disciple and mentor mankind to know you, to love you, and to cherish you. And, Lord, as we heard this afternoon, the notable day is approaching, perhaps sooner than we think. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would prepare our hearts And, Lord, that we would avail ourselves to the truth, to your love, and to your good and Holy Spirit, Lord, that we may love him, cherish him, and follow. And, Lord, that we would yield ourselves to you. Lord, help us, forgive us where we fail. Um, And also, Lord, that you would strengthen each brother, each sister, Lord, with your truth, with your love and grace, Lord, that we would walk in this world and that we would express the salt, Lord, that men may taste and they would say, Lord, we glorify thy name because of what we see, what you've done in these people. Help us, Lord, and be with us and strengthen us this day that we would follow you and continually. In all these things we pray in your blessed name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'll make a couple words in conclusion. Those in Peter's time didn't realize the signs that they were seeing. Peter had to point out their significance to them based on what the prophet Joel had said. Christ also gave us signs to look for. We don't know exactly when his coming will be. But he tells us of things. Every so often we get little reminders. Just the other night I was looking at a news story. Those who follow the news in Europe know that conditions are very bad there right now. There's, there's a heat wave and a drought going on. The Rhine River is drying up. The Elbe, uh, another river there, you know, as the water levels recede, things are revealed. And there are these large stones that are called hunger stones. Big boulders of granite that have been chiseled into back in the 1600s in German. And it says there, if you see me, cry. Things are going to get bad. Of course, in agrarian society, no water, no crops, no food. In other places... Well, the Rhine River, I think it's in Serbia, there, it's dropped now. They can see these boats that Hitler sank, or the Germans sank, at the end of the Second World War to keep them from falling into the hands of the Russians. In other places, in Spain, the water levels have dropped, revealing old Roman camps and medieval bridges that were underwater. There's a time given There is an invitation given. 
I'm no prophet. I can't tell you exactly when the Lord comes. But we know about famine. We know about the power of the sun being given power to scorch men with heat. Could we be in the last days right now? I don't know. But if you have not yet availed yourself of the sacrifice of Christ, the washing of your sins in his blood and the filling of his spirit, don't delay. You don't know how many days you are given or how many more days until the Lord will return. It's not something that you should toy with. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said, and may he dismiss us now with his blessing. Amen. Sorry, I forgot to mention, there are some phone lists that are in the, in the updated phone lists that are in the uh, minister's office. If you would like a paper copy versus the electronic one, help yourself. Uh, they're just on the, the, the table.